Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a show about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm JP Simard. And I'm Jesse Squires. And before we get started today, I'd like to thank our first sponsor, which is Vettery. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that is changing the way people hire and get hired. Access is exclusive, and once you're on their marketplace, top employers can view your profile and extend interview requests via email. Vettery specializes in the tech space for software developers, data science scientists, product managers, etc. You can set your preferences for desired location, top skills, years of experience, professional background, and salary requirements so that you'll receive interview requests only for roles that match what you're looking for. Vettery is free to join, and you can sign up at vettery.com slash swiftunwrapped and get a $300 bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Uh, again, the link is vettery.com slash swiftunwrapped, and using that link helps support this show. So thank you. Now, today we want to talk about a recent blog post uh, that, that was posted to swift.org about the new diagnostic architecture that is being built for the upcoming 5.2 release. Uh, now, this is a blog post uh, posted October 17th, 2019 by Pavel Yaskovich, who uh, works on the Swift compiler uh, at Apple. And this is um, an area that of the compiler that we all have to work with, mm-hmm. uh, we all have to live with, and it, in the best of days, it helps us write our code, and in the worst of days, it <laughs> makes us close our laptop and, and go do something else. Right, and this blog post sheds a lot of light on exactly why that is the way it is currently, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I had no idea, like, the, you know, sort of the background of how the diagno- diagnostics were produced, so it's it was nice to to see. It makes me like less angry about the diagnostics currently. Actually, it it made you uh, have empathy for the compiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it did, and I'm excited for the changes that are coming because uh, I think it's going to improve a lot. Right. So let's talk about that. Um, you mentioned the word diagnostic. I, I think it's probably best if if we do just a little bit of terminology up front, mm-hmm. so we have a shared vocabulary moving forward. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of words thrown around here. Things like diagnostics, errors, uh, warnings. What do we mean by diagnostic, Jesse? Yeah. So a diagnostic is um, any sort of. Uh, I guess, error or warning um, emitted by the compiler when it finds a problem in your code. And I think usually the goal is to also provide a solution for you, a fix-it that you can apply to make your incorrect code correct. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Um, and the diagnostic engine is sort of the, the part of the compiler that is responsible for um, nudging you in the right direction when things have gone wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the challenge that is outlined here, uh, and and we've heard in previous conversations with, with folks who work on this stuff, is that um, 
you know, you, you may define what is valid Swift, but the ways in which you can write invalid Swift are infinite. Right. Um, right. The, the ways in which something can be wrong is not, not a finite set, right? Right. And understanding um, why something is wrong is not trivial and not exact either. Where, um, you know, say you have three errors, um, then y- maybe you can you can fix two of them, or maybe you should just remove a line entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you mi- maybe you have a typo in something, or maybe you forgot to unwrap some sort of optional. Right there, right. there could be so many ways in which um, bad code can then be corrected uh, that it might be hard for um, tooling to identify like the one thing that's wrong with the code that you wrote right and it's um, it's actually it's interesting because it kind of gets at um, you know this idea of like what did you intend to write like what you know it's it's like the diagnostic engine is trying to figure out what you mean it's like okay you wrote this incorrect thing I'm gonna guess what you wanted to say um which is actually like really hard i mean it's kind of like if um if you're doing a code review and you don't understand something uh and you're like what do you mean by this like what's in your head you know and uh it's hard to do for a computer it's hard to do for a human yeah um, right a lot of the times right which is what's led to a lot of the recent frustration mm-hmm. with um you know there's uh, with with people writing Swift um, from the very early days, but also more recently using some of the tools like Function Builders and uh, Swift UI comes to mind, where um, if it's unclear even for the human how to write proper uh, valid Swift programs or Swift UI programs, then um, it can be it can be just as hard, if not harder, for uh, a tool to have like concrete rules about um, inferring what what the meaning actually was, and and effectively yeah. you can't right you right it's we don't have artificial intelligence in our compilers just yet, um, <laughs> right and so you you have to build um, systems that can allow you to get close enough most of the time, um, and that's what this blog post. Uh, giving an overview on this new diagnostic architecture is all about is sort of explaining how uh, that that framework used to work and how the new version is now moving over to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other piece of this is um, that the diagnostic infrastructure is uh, tightly coupled to um, the type checker and how type inference works. So we should probably talk a little bit about that as well before moving on. Yeah, that's that's effectively how uh, the Swift compiler um, uh, tries to determine what went wrong whenever it encounters an error, is that it, it relies on the types, and it relies on the type checker, as opposed to, um, for example, purely relying on uh, syntax, mm-hmm. right? Um because you can have, if if you just look at a piece of Swift code 
in isolation, you're just looking at a snippet, there's no way for you to tell if it's valid or not unless you know the entirety of the abstract syntax tree up to that point. Right. You, you might be able to tell if it's incorrect pretty quickly, right? You might have some fast paths where, um, you know, it's always incorrect to, to have a certain combination of characters. Mm-hmm. But it, proving that it's correct is a lot harder than uh, proving that something is, is incorrect. Right. What about pure syntactical errors? Like if you misspell struct, for example. Uh, well, if you mil- misspell struct, it, it depends on the grammar. Like mm-hmm. if you have a local variable called str, right. then yeah. is that misspelling <laughs> struct? Right. Or is it? So it very much depends on sort of the context around um, around that, that particular token. Sure. Um, sp- speaking of other terminology, right? Um, the uh, the tokens are um, what's produced by the the lexer, uh, which takes in all this source code and then produces like chunks that can then be passed f- to further stages of the Swift compiler to say, well, make sense of these tokens. And a token can be something like a struct keyword or a keyword or an identifier, like Mm -hmm. a variable name um, and things like that. Uh, So when when you have um, parts of the grammar that are incorrect, uh, right, then you might be able to to provide more helpful errors. Mm -hmm. But if it's um, valid syntax, just invalid you know, references or semantically invalid. Like, for example, force unwrapping something that isn't an optional right, um, right. isn't invalid grammar, but it is invalid semantics. Right. And previously, um, with the old diagnostic engine, um, the old type type checker had to guess the exact location, of, uh, the exact location of an error. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it didn't have um, it didn't have a robust way to sort of bubble errors and that's what's being solved in the new type checker is that it will proactively um, try to fix whatever error it encounters so that it can continue its job and whenever it applies a fix this is not actually changing your source code but it's it's applying a fix to its syntax tree representation then it can continue and if if at the end of the day it it really can't resolve that error, mm-hmm. uh, then that's what will surface as a diagnostic. And the previous engine, like for example, if you were force unwrapping something that wasn't an optional, it might give you an error that wasn't actionable at all that said type of expression is ambiguous without more context. <laughs> that's right. like, right. thanks Swift, like what do I do with this? Yeah. Um, but the new engine might say something like, uh, let's see, cannot force unwrap value of non-optional type int. Like that is night and day uh the difference in in readability uh, between those errors yeah and i think those have improved massively over time but even still um often you'll see um an error just a particular line is pointed out as having an error but you may not know exactly where in that line or because of this uh, the sort of guessing it currently has to do, you'll see. Um, I know I've I've seen people writing about using Swift UI recently and how sometimes the error is actually the line before um, the line that is uh, highlighted as having the error. 
Um, and so the changes here are hopefully going to resolve those problems. Yeah, and it's worth saying that um, this new diagnostic architecture isn't a switch that can be turned on, right? The Swift compiler already has several hundred diagnostics. Um, it's more so migrating how these diagnostics um, currently work to using this new system. So it's going to be a, a long um, and and uh, time-consuming effort, uh, and it may never really be quote-unquote done, but um, this clearly outlines a new direction for how diagnostics can be plugged in, and um, and it this blog post really does help explain sort of the rationalization of, of the approach, how the type checker works, and how it can leave breadcrumbs or fixes along the way um, in order to have robust error or warning messages. Yeah, and the way this is written, it seems like um, this could go through and diagnose multiple things at once instead of like failing too early. Is that how you read this? Yes, um, part of part of the blog post does touch on that. How um, previously, if you had sort of cascading errors, right, where you have one that the compiler finds and then it just bails, you fix it, but then that surface is a different one, right? Because this new diagnostic architecture will um, will attempt to apply a fix to its local syntax tree mm -hmm. um, and then keep going it can know uh, whether or not like it, it can find a more complete set of errors and it can better surface the kinds of errors that are more likely to fix um, uh, to 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 fix a particular issue as opposed to guessing what a fix would be mm -hmm. uh, or say like guessing there are four potential ways to fix this and bring all four but Without applying them, you don't necessarily know if they'll cause other errors down the line. Right. Um, so this new architecture um, applies them uh, as it's being generated, as opposed to waiting for the user to apply it to know if there are further issues. We'd love to take a moment and thank Square for sponsoring this episode of Swift Unwrapped. Square has a new YouTube channel with shows for developers. Their APIs and SDKs make taking payments easy. Square supports iOS, Android, Flutter, and React Native for their in-app mobile payments, or to integrate with Square readers from your own app. Square has payment forms if you want to quickly embed a checkout experience into a website, and APIs to take you beyond payments using orders, catalog, inventory, or employee management. They have developer tutorials and other videos on their youtube.com slash square dev channel. You can check them out there, youtube.com slash square dev. Our thanks to Square for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, have you ever gotten into one of these uh, fix-it loops where something is incorrect and you, know, like you apply the fix-it and then the compiler says, oh, that's incorrect, and it suggests another fix-it, which is what you had before? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the scenarios where exactly that's happened to me, but it's it's been a few times and it's uh, kind of comical at first and then... You know, it, it sometimes it takes a while to actually figure out exactly what's happening. 
Yeah, if you're just mindlessly clicking fix it and command B and you're just you're just a drone at your yeah. computer because you don't understand the code any more than the compiler does. <laughs> right. And you're just like, is it at no escape or at escaping? Which one is right. it now and where does it go? And yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I love fix it loops. That's <laughs> yeah. part of my day. Right. I, I also can't recall like a specific case where this has happened, but I I know this has happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like toward the end of the day and you're just kind of like trying to get something done and you like don't realize you're in that loop for a couple minutes and then you're like, oh. Yeah, the best is when you have like one of those very long loops, right, where you go and apply fix it to one place and then you go to this other place, you apply fix it, and then this chain has like three or four layers of separation and then you're back to where you started because now the changes that yeah. you did at step three impacted like broke step one again right yeah. right. I, I love that. right uh yeah it sounds like this new engine could help resolve that as well potentially it seems like it could because if the compiler is uh keeping is like proactively applying these fixits it may be able to suggest sort of the the series of fixes with the shortest hamming distance to producing correct code right Mm -hmm. right so just to give a sense of the kinds of improvements that we can we can look forward to seeing um this blog post has a list of examples of improved diagnostics uh there's one where if you omit if you forget to have an argument label for a function it previously would say argument labels smiley face does not match any available <laughs> overloads and, and the new one says missing argument label answer colon in call like that that's exactly what you would want um uh, a human to tell you right right uh and the interesting thing is that uh so i'm assuming what they're showing here in this blog post and these examples is like the actual text you would see in xcode um or like the actual like um diagnostic that's emitted and it has like this little like um ascii sort of like map thing where like has a little carrot that shows you the exact location of where the change needs to be made, right? Yeah, that's immensely helpful. Yeah. So maybe to try to describe this to listeners more, um, you would have, uh, you'd have this error message, then it has like the declaration that's incorrect. And then beneath that, um, like exactly the point in the code where you need to change um uh, what is incorrect, there'd be like a little, uh, um, what's that symbol called JP, the little carrot, the up arrow. Yeah, that's a carrot. Yeah. Shift six. Um, that would be there pointing at the location. And then beneath that on a new line would be the code that you need to insert to make this correct, which is really awesome. Yeah, and this is, I think, a bit of a reflection of of Swift starting to become a little bit more mature, mm-hmm. um, where you look at some some other modern languages. Rust comes to mind here, where 
compiling Rust from from the uh, from some sort of command line interface gives you these nice visual uh, renderings pointing to where an issue can be, um, and it even goes as far as having things like um, syntax highlighting in the terminal, like. Sometimes we can't even get syntax highlighting to work in our IDE. Like the right. fact that right. other languages sometimes do this as part of their error reporting mm-hmm. is um, is something to aspire to. I think um, also just not being afraid to it, in in the case where uh, an error can be more specifically marked as actionable. Right, the difference between saying. Um, this argument doesn't match any available overloads versus pointing to a specific character and saying missing argument label um, to not be afraid to be a little bit more verbose. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help to be verbose if you're vague to start off with and you're just adding more text to that. But if you can, if you can add like a second line explaining why that's needed, right? Saying missing argument label answer and call. Well, why do I need to add answer? Because, or why do I need to have an explicit um, parameter label when, in some cases, I can refer to this function without specifying the argument labels? Right? If you're doing like a tuple splat, or if you're uh, right um, assigning a reference to this function to some sort of local variable, um, in those cases, you don't have to specify these argument labels. So why do I need to do it now? Well, adding that second line would really go a long way in terms of explaining to users how Swift works, what the rationale there mm-hmm. is, right. um, which in turn helps people write better code because they have a better understanding of of how the language works. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think this is also like to continue on with this, um, this next example in the post if you try to add an int and a uint, currently the diagnostic will be binary operator plus cannot be applied to operands of type int and uint, which is correct, um, but it's like, it's a very uh, sort of, I don't know, like pedantic kind of uh, error message, whereas the new diagnostic will be cannot convert value of type uint to expected argument type of int, and then it will point to the uint and say, oh, you need to wrap this um, in int, you know, parentheses to construct an int from the uint, uh, which I think is much more clear for beginners. Um, I think advanced Swift programmers would understand the, the current diagnostic and know what that means, but it is a bit obscure if you're learning. Well, not only that, but um, I think what you were getting to with, with this example in regards to what we were just saying in terms of having more um, more verbose error messages that may include more of a rationale and a justification beyond just what's broken, but why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, why um, that doesn't work. Right. In this case... Um, there are actually trade-offs to um, doing a type conversion between uint and int. Mm-hmm. Um, but without that additional context uh, explaining the justification, one sort of has to look at this and say, well, if the compiler is telling me to wrap this thing uh, in a type conversion, why wouldn't the compiler just do that itself, right? 
and without that additional context, um, you you lack empathy for the compiler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know where um, it, it's sort of frustrating. Where it knows how to how to solve it, but why does the language stop you from doing these sort of um, implicit uh, value conversions? Right. Right. And why does it need to be explicit? Well. Maybe if we took advantage of this learning opportunity mm-hmm. um, and having maybe like a link to further documentation, right, right? or a rationale about why uh, you know, Swift is uh, strict about its type rules mm-hmm. um, would really go a long way as opposed to this like badgering of the user saying like, uh, not quite, n- not quite to this point, but almost like you idiot. Yeah. Obviously, you can't com- compare. You can't add a uint to an int, but rather to say, "Oh, I-, I got you, fam. You know, this is a common common issue. Here's the reasons why. Like, you need to do an explicit type conversion. Right, right. And then you, and then you're like, thank you, Swift compiler. You, <laughs> you, you helped me get better. Right. Yeah, maybe that'll be the the third rewrite of this. It'll link out to the exact chapter in the Swift programming language book uh, that you need to read to understand why what you wrote is incorrect. Yeah, and on an infinite timescale, we'll just have Clippy. Yeah, yeah. Hanging out next to Xcode and just pointing out tips and tricks. Did you know? Right, yeah. And, like, say that out loud with Siri's voice. (laughs) Yeah, the other thing about this particular one, um, so again, the current thing, the current diagnostic is binary operator plus cannot be applied. Um, that also requires you to know like what a binary operator is. Um, you know, if you're like just learning, there's a lot of jargon in that current diagnostic that you might just be like, I don't even know what this is trying to say. So I think the the new one is uses a lot simpler language which is good yeah again looking at some of the state of the art in uh, in the space right um i think linters have uh really laid out some potential next direction next steps mm-hmm. for how to how to have um good actionable and informative error warning messages um i think of shell check where uh, it's this command line tool that lets you um lint bash scripts and other types of shell scripts Mm. and it has specific error numbers um for each sort of lint rule that it has yeah and if you run it on a script and you find something that uh you know it's it's telling you there's something wrong or maybe that you should look at um it will give you sort of a verbose description of why what you currently wrote uh is discouraged um, it will link out to um, examples of uh, how to convert code that is like violating one of these lint rules to um, you know correct the mistake hmm. uh, or to make it you know, to to avoid whatever the justification for for it being linted in the first place would be, right? Like for example, um, this doesn't handle um, you know the empty string or something, right? Right. Uh, and and it will link out to some sort of web page where you can read more about that. Mm-hmm. I think doing any one of those things, having specific uh, error numbers that you can actually Google, right? right. <laughs> that you can search right. on the web for to see how people have resolved this. Having um, 
uh, fix it, of course, but also a justification or a rationale mm-hmm. for why that is an error and, and why um, why it's actually by design that you can't do what you tried to write. Right. Um, having examples of, um, you know, to, to use absolute terms like bad code and good code, right? How to correct it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, pick better names than, than bad and, and good, but... <laughs> right. Um, and link out to, to further uh, to further documentation. I think doing any one of those number of things, now that we have sort of a good way to um, pinpoint what an error actually was, I think a lot of that is um, some good low-hanging fruit to, to do across the board. Yeah, um, hopefully that, that sort of thing can come uh, once this is in a, a more, you know, stable state. Yeah, and maybe it's maybe this is something where there's a call out to the community to go and and flesh some of this out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But for that, you'd probably want like you know clear guidelines and uh, a low barrier to entry for you know you found a diagnostic that that could be improved. Like here's where you go to to go and and improve it. Here's where you can run the tests for it without necessarily having to do a clean build of LLVM. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there there's a long way that this could go. And, you know, maybe it's a matter of using, um, not necessarily using code uh, to, like, keep the strings where this um, these diagnostics live, but rather, like, mm-hmm. some sort of just plain text file like we use for localizable strings, right? Right. Where you just go in there and you can literally tweak a string um, and and uh, improve the status quo. Yeah, that would be amazing, actually, if, if you could do that. Now, we briefly touched on Swift UI um, sort of exacerbating this problem. And I think that there is a number of, um, of factors that are contributing to this uh, sort of resurfacing the fact that... Uh, it's now hard to write Swift again, <laughs> just like it was in, in Swift 1.0 days. Right, right. For, for one, you have function builders, which um, sort of loosens the relationship between um, expected types a little bit more than it used to. Uh, there's actually a, um, a constraint in SwiftUI that I only learned about uh, a few days ago where you can only have 10... Um, elements in a Swift UI uh, function builder. Oh. Uh, more than that, and I, I'm not actually sure what happens if there's a compiler error um, or if there's a runtime error, but I, I think some of that is, is partly to um, minimize the strain on the type checker. Right. Right, so it, it is uh, it is a little bit harder on the type checker. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's worth pointing out that the the whole way that you construct views in Swift UI relies heavily on type inference, um, right? Like the whole thing, like you're not specifying any explicit types really. Um, you know, you have all these closures and all of that is being inferred for you, which is why this strain on the the type checker exists, right? Yeah, yeah. It also means that when you're... Um Applying some of the modifiers in SwiftUI, which are um, usually instance functions, member functions that take in a view or some sort of other 
view-conforming protocol and returns a view or a view-conforming protocol, mm-hmm. um, if there's something mistyped within there, it, it may throw off uh, the whole function builder type checker. Um, right. Where uh, it, if it fails there, it, it may think that the error is actually somewhere else. Um, I, I think we've seen that a lot where, where the line where an error is reported isn't actually the one where you, you had um, the mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also have the fact that SwiftUI um, is both a hybrid, like you can drag code blocks into the code editor or you can use autocomplete. Um, but uh, you can't really go from like actually making edits in a visual way Mm -hmm. and then switching back to the source representation like the source representation is the only representation um as opposed to people who are used to working with um uh, interface builder for example right right um plus you add the fact that it's a new framework which isn't entirely documented um Mm -hmm. which let's you know touch on that maybe some other time um the state of documentation right uh it it means that you rely on the compiler's uh, diagnostic engine a lot more than if you're using the swift standard library which has stayed more or less the same over the last two years and and you're used to writing um stuff with it right so all of those factors combined together i think um really have resurfaced um, the diagnostic situation with the Swift compiler as as something that's top of mind. Yeah, and I wonder if, um, I mean, obviously all of these changes to the diagnostic engine are amazing improvements that should happen anyway, but um, I wonder if Swift UI um, being released and... Um, just SwiftUI existing um, has pushed for doing this um, uh, improvement, like making these changes sooner rather than later, um, or if it was already in the works. Or um, yeah, it seems it seems like perhaps the the old diagnostic engine could have lived for a little bit longer um, without SwiftUI existing. Um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, this new diagnostic architecture um, f- first came out with Swift 5.1. Uh, it's just that not too many diagnostics had been ported over at that point. Right? I see, I see. And this, this speaks to um, this transition and this migration not really being a, a binary, um, you know, done um, process where it's it's going to be incremental. Um, right, right. But the timing is definitely suspect, right? Where uh, I think the first that I started learning about this diagnostic change was probably about a year ago, right? So mm-hmm. late fall 2018. And you, you, have, you have to know that, um, you know, folks working at Apple on Swift, on Swift UI, were, were talking to each other at that point, right? Right, um, of course, yeah. So... So the timing is definitely suspect, um, but either either way, um, you know, not to speculate too much about what would have happened without SwiftUI. This is a good thing with and without SwiftUI. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's all we had for today. Uh, we'd like to thank our two sponsors. 
The first is Vettery, and again, the link is vettery.com slash Swift Unwrapped. And again, we'd love to thank Square for sponsoring this episode. They have a new YouTube channel for developers that you can check out at youtube.com slash square dev. And you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP on Twitter. If you enjoy the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And thanks for listening. <laughs>